It feels like we're in witness protection, but you just blew your cover, Jeff. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world beat the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 22nd, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from Pennsylvania is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. Yeah, it's uh, the the undisclosed location, the uh, the bunker in Pennsylvania. I don't know what we decided last week. No, I'm gonna just give like I like the really general now locations for everyone. Like somewhere on the eastern seaboard. <laughs> I could also alternatively just pick a different town in Pennsylvania and say I'm there. So you know, I'm in uh, Exton today. Ooh, ooh, nice. Ah, lovely. I hear it's lovely there. <laughs> And from California is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Neil. Wait, you can say Los Angeles. No one had any complaints over that. No, I am going for the parallel construction. Fine. Keep of, it vague. Uh, California yeah. is a huge state. <laughs> um, guys, it was another. It's been another big weekend in sports. The sports they they do not stop. Uh, <laughs> Byron Buck- Buxton broke his hand last night, so that's pretty exciting from the oh, Twins' I didn't perspective. Even see that. Yeah, I just just I as the Twins were were starting to play better, right? Yeah, they are on a five-game winning streak. Jacob Degrom threw five innings and apparently didn't get that hurt, which is a big step <laughs> forward. <laughs> I mean, he, he got a little hurt. I mean, that was clear, but um, uh, not yeah. significantly hurt, which is a big step forward for him. Just vague discomfort on his right side, which apparently happens in every game. <laughs> yeah, apparently when you throw 101 miles per hour every pitch, it takes a toll on the body. But this is, you know, none, of, sure? none, of, this, none of this is proven, you know, this is a gray area. You know, this is just speculation. Yeah. There was some very cool news out of the NFL on Monday. Carl Nassib, defensive end for the Las Vegas Raiders, became the first active NFL player to come out as gay. Nassib also pledged to donate $100,000 to the Trevor Project, an organization that works to prevent suicide among LGBTQ youth. Uh, I thought the like the announcement was really cool. The reaction was was really cool. I obviously stayed out of all the Twitter comments, but um, but this is this is a, I mean, this is not really that surprising. There are probably many gay athletes in the NFL who just have not come out, but um, it's pretty it's pretty fun to think that we're in a world now that people don't have to hide who they are and can just be who they are even in professional sports. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. And and hopefully it's just the first of many where, and, and I, you know, from what I saw from the reaction from, you know, his teammates, John Gruden, you know, people like that, it's just sort of like almost, it's a good thing when uh, the more that it becomes sort of like a shrug where it's like, okay, cool. You know, it's not a big deal. It's really not a big deal at all. On today's show, we'll discuss Monday's unanimous Supreme Court ruling against the NCAA and what it all means for college sports. Then we'll check in on the NBA playoffs and also the well-being of the entire city of Philadelphia. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. On Monday, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling in the case of the National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Alston. 
It was a complete shutout against the NCAA. In the 9-0 decision, the court ruled that the NCAA can't enforce rules that bar schools from providing certain education-related benefits to student-athletes, like, say, graduate school scholarships, study abroad opportunities, laptops for classes, that kind of thing. The ruling doesn't get into the stickier issue of whether student-athletes should be paid for playing or whether they can profit from things like endorsements or sponsorships. But the unanimous decision has to strike fear in the hearts of people who really believe in the integrity of amateur sports, all like 12 of them. On the Shanae and Golick Jr. show, Mike Golick Jr. suggested that the ruling will have significant implications for the NCAA going forward. And you're saying, wait a minute, we unified bipartisan politics. Like, we unified a Supreme Court that has so many varying degrees of things that they are even willing to come close to agreeing on unanimously against us. Man, it's got to be painfully obvious that what you're doing is just starting to not make a lot of sense, Trevin. As we look at this, the interesting thing is going to become, all right, where does this go from here right now the next time the NCAA gets challenged on something like what they do with their players, limiting the free market around college sports. Because this is all just a reminder that where we're going, the direction we're going is not going to stop here, right? Jeff, was this ruling a death knell for our current understanding of amateurism? I think it's a, it kind of a yes and no. No in that the actual ruling, this ruling is pretty narrow. And the average fan, I don't even think, would notice or this wouldn't really affect anything. Um, it means the backup quarterback for Tulsa can get access to a laptop computer. You know, that's not going to, like, shake up college sports uh, dramatically. I mean, there are some interesting things that sort of fit under that umbrella um, of these these academic-related benefits. One of them is a sort of $5,900 of cash it allows for $5,900 academic awards, which you could maybe argue could become a recruiting tool for certain schools um, if, if they were open to that. But otherwise, I think the actual ruling itself really won't affect that many things. But I think it is significant, and I think it is could be argued uh, is the beginning of the end of amateurism, at least in, in college sports. You know, I think the real, the real big takeaway, if this had just ended on the sort of Gorsuch initial opinion on the ruling itself that's one thing and i think that would have been pretty expected i don't think anyone any sort of legal analyst was thinking that this was you know the ncaa was going to win this i think even the 9-0 wasn't that surprising considering the actual case at hand but brett kavanaugh's opinion was incredibly significant and, and that really was not expected and it wasn't even totally needed he kind of came over the top and just dunked on the NC, NCAA. He, he basically had a wide open dunk and he took it instead of passing, <laughs> instead of passing <laughs> to someone who was guarded, which, they, which the SCOTUS does sometimes. But, um, you know, they, 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 they will do that sort of pass occasionally. But what he said was really significant. I mean, he basically said in so many words that the NCAA is not above the law and that their whole business model is kind of fraught, like fraught and that it doesn't make sense and that no one's buying that anyone's watching these sports because of the spirit of uh, amateurism and that they're making billions of dollars and they're not going to the players. I mean, essentially what Kavanaugh said opens the door to many more lawsuits and significant change, whether that's in image and likeness 
or whether that's in you know paying players, I think it opens the door. And essentially, what Kavanaugh's saying is that if you bring any more lawsuits here, we're not going to side with you. So figure it out. Whether figure it out through collective bargaining, which he even mentions, which kind of opens the door for you know student athletes forming a union, which you know obviously it's tried in the past, but now I think there's significant legal precedent to to operate. You know under under this umbrella and and also or or figure it out in legislation um through congress but otherwise like we're not going to side with you if, if we see another one of these cases so what that means is unknown but it, it's pretty significant i mean i think it, it sort of exposes the ncaa to numerous antitrust lawsuits and 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 i think it, if we one of those gets bumped up to the supreme court we could see something sort of really significant that does sort of signal the the death knell of amateurism in, in college sports. Yeah, I, I the Kavanaugh line that's that was in, in the concurring opinion, the NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. <laughs> like that I mean, felt that, that's a lot. Of, yeah, that felt like a pretty uh, pointed uh, uh, thing to say. You know, there's not really there's no subtlety in that. It's really it really is saying yeah, it's yeah. struck a nerve. Who appointed this guy? <laughs> There's no lies in it either. No, none whatsoever. It, it really, yeah. But but I think you're right, Jeff, that it does seem like an invitation to sue over pay. Neil, where, what do we expect to see next in this fight for athletes to get paid? Yeah, I do think that this is going to only intensify the efforts that were kind of already underway. I think, you know, we were already expecting to see more legal challenges to the way the NCAA does business. And from the sounds of things, this uh, opinion by Kavanaugh seems like it really is sort of this invitation. In fact, there's a quote from a lawyer named Steve Berman, who was also involved in this case, but he's leading a separate lawsuit that uh, challenges basically any limits that the NCAA puts on these name, uh, image, and likeness uh, opportunities for, for athletes. And he told ESPN that they're actually considering his law firm uh, in, in the course of those suits kind of amending things and changing uh, to be more aggressive because of what Brett Kavanaugh said uh, and, and sort of going for the whole the whole kit and caboodle, the whole enchilada, you know, they were sort of holding back because they maybe thought, oh, we don't know if the Supreme Court is going to necessarily have our back on this. Uh, but he said, in light of Justice Kavanaugh's comments, we're rethinking whether we should once again challenge pay for play. Kavanaugh is suggesting you should go after everything, which I think is interesting um, and speaks to the take at the top of the segment that maybe the NCAA thought that they would have a safe haven with some of these conservative appointed uh, justices and maybe, you know, given the composition of the Supreme Court, that they would be favorable to them. And they ran into a buzzsaw because now they're sort of seeing that you you can't uh, get help from the left side of the political spectrum if you're the NCAA, who are very pro-labor, you know, and trying to kind of get the players more rights to, to be able to control their own economic destiny. But you're not really going to have a friend in the right end of the political spectrum either uh, because of what Kavanaugh said, that it, it really is about um, letting the free markets decide uh, what whether players can be paid and what they should be worth, not this, you know, very old-timey amateurism-centric model that doesn't really seem to have a place in anywhere in America in, in 2021. Yeah, it is pretty amazing that, that 
there the the unanimous nature of the decision i i was very surprised by that i was not expecting i mean i was really expecting this to be a very split court does that does that say anything that that it was unanimous and so <laughs> so opposed to the NCAA business model? Does that say anything about where kind of the court of public opinion is right now in terms of compensating student athletes? You know, I don't think these justices are factoring that in. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, this is long overdue and that this organization has refused i mean there are they had many opportunities to be more forward-thinking and be proactive and and as they as college sports continue to bring in more and more money they could have adjusted these rules and made it a little bit more fair and they kept digging in and they you know went to the courts and they stood by something that is completely arcane this this idea of of amateur student athletes and this ideal that they shouldn't be paid or they shouldn't be it, it even though the sport itself is changing and players you know in terms of their what they're being asked to do on a sort of week to week practice schedule and in the commitment to that and uh, flying across the country and then still trying to be students i mean obviously the sport keeps growing and growing and nothing is changing with the rules of the of the NCAA to sort of match that growth and to match the amount of revenue coming in. So if there was thought that maybe because the Republican sort of conservative brand is on the side of tradition and stasis and not changing things, that maybe they would side with the NCAA here, then that was completely knocked down with this decision. And whether or not that's a reflection of public opinion, I, I'm not really sure. But I mean, it certainly does seem like that is public opinion. But it does match with, to your point about public opinion, Sarah, I mean, it does match where polling has been on this subject as well where especially in recent years, consistently somewhere between 50% and, you know, 67%, two thirds, whatever, uh, of people polled support the idea of athletes being paid, college athletes being paid. So it's also not out of step with, with the, um, the opinion of most people in the country. I think in this case, it doesn't seem like the NCAA really has allies anywhere outside of you know the the people that have a financial interest in maintaining this system for themselves and, and you know it is telling that after you know they've already been trying to you know make incremental changes in this direction especially when it comes to the name image and likeness stuff because they can see the writing on the wall and they see that the tide has really 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 turned against them especially in recent years uh but mark emmert said you know they're going to go back to claudia wilkin who is the judge that issued the original opinion or, or ruling that this supreme court case was actually um challenging and and uh trying to appeal to get clarifications on basically the boundaries now. So it's really now they're sort of going back and uh, having failed to obliterate or repudiate the original ruling. Now they're just trying to figure out like, okay, where's the, how, how much of a box are we in right now in terms, how, how confined are we in, in terms of, um, you know, avoiding uh, payments or compensation and then I think we're going to start to see even more sort of like trying to smooth the transition going forward towards some kind of uh, pay for play model because like, yeah, they've, they've seen that they're pretty much um, under attack from all sides. And it just doesn't seem like the, the way they're doing things right now is sustainable and fighting it is only going to make it worse for them. 
I mean, I think that that's an interesting point because I, I can't really tell whether the NCAA is actually going to do, you, you know, make changes that will, you know, work with the students and and get us closer to that, or if they're just going to go down with the ship right now. It does feel like they are. I mean, you know, I saw a quote from Emmert that was basically like, well, you know, Kavanaugh's opinion doesn't really count because the other justices wouldn't you know wouldn't sign on to it so we're not that worried about it and it's like buddy (laughs) like it's a it's a problem for you i i can't i can't figure out what you know if the ncaa does understand like this is really your your whole way of doing things here is going to change quickly and and if they you know if it seems like if they understood that then they would be wanting to guide the ship in some direction that they were comfortable with. But I I just can't, I get the sense that they are just going to keep their heads buried in the sand as long as possible and, and refuse to, to change as long as possible. I mean, the NCAA's long, long standing policy is don't change anything unless we absolutely have to. (laughs) Right. And that's sort of what we're seeing here. And frankly, it's a little too late. If you look at uh, the the name, image, and likeness laws that are going on the books July 1st in six states, so that's Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, New Mexico, Texas, they're they're putting through laws effective as in a couple weeks that will be more permissive to to allowing uh, you know players to get uh, those NIL benefits, and and that puts them in a really tough spot because now all of a sudden, I, I think those six states or schools within those six states now have a significant uh, recruiting advantage. And and now they have to kind of scramble. And we saw them scrambling to Congress to try to get something passed. And Congress was like, essentially, have you have you been reading the news? We, we're not going to pass anything. Um, we don't have time, you know, the, the, especially something on, on short notice. And, you know, they're they're sort of entertaining these countermeasures like allowing the schools themselves to sort of define their own NIL laws, which feels a little problematic. But that is something they could have put through years ago. And now they're only entertaining that because they're kind of up against a wall. What would you guys do if you were if you were in charge of the NCAA um, besides expand the, besides resign. expand the college football playoff? Um, resign. Yeah, that's already happening. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, would you would you come up with a a pay for play plan? Would you at least like institute nil rules? You know, the across the board. What would you do to sort of save the NCAA at this point? As I said earlier, the real doomsday scenario is student athletes unionizing because then all of a sudden you know there's the threat of work stoppage you know not shutting down college football because of this kind of thing and it it really and then everything has to be collectively bargained and then that really changes college football college basketball um and really all college sports dramatically i think they could put in something but honestly i don't know it might be too late they could put in something that is way more modest you know whether that's you know a stipend or a smaller amount of pay and then loosen the NIL laws, as you said, and and a couple other things, you know, maybe some of the academic requirements that are within reason. There could be a 
something that would sort of appease the players and, and sort of stop the momentum. But I, honestly, I don't know. It might be too late. Well, you already know what I would do, which is turn the uh, turn college football and basketball into professional developmental yes. leagues that license the uh, logos and names of the various schools. That's right. That is my favorite of your ideas for <laughs> revamping. ideas. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, well, those are um, the sort of uh, dramatic uh, ends of the spectrum of what the NCAA could do right now. A small stipend or blow the whole thing up. All right, well, this will be a fascinating uh, journey here from this ruling to what happens next for the NCAA. I think we can leave this discussion here for now. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back to talk about the NBA. We are finally to the conference finals portion of the NBA playoffs. The Phoenix Suns have already won a game against the Los Angeles Clippers. And the upstart Atlanta Hawks are set to face off against the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow night. But that disturbance you may have felt as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced (laughs) is the sound of the Philadelphia 76ers fans on Twitter. I imagine they're trying to forget about that moment in the fourth quarter of Game 7 where Ben Simmons found himself under the basket and just didn't dunk over Trey Young. The Sixers certainly did not expect to lose three games at home to the Hawks, and the loss puts them at something of a crossroads. In his post-game press conference, Philly coach Doc Rivers couldn't say whether Simmons could become a championship-level point guard. Yeah, David, I don't know that question or the answer to that right now. Um... You know, so I don't know the answer to that. So, yikes. Simmons had an awful Game 7. But, Neil, did did he sink Philadelphia in this series? I think he didn't help Philly. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's another one where it's like there, there's more factors uh, to blame than just Simmons. But certainly he didn't do any favors for himself by scoring five points in a Game 7 uh, at home and passing up that shot, I, I think, that word uh, crossroads is really I thought the Sixers were at a crossroads last year they're they're what's even more of a crossroad than a crossroad it's like that <laughs> that uh that intersection in Tokyo where it's like eight different streets uh <laughs> meet in one point and the crosswalks go every different direction that's where the Sixers are right now <laughs> uh, I I think it was you know it's easy to blame Simmons I think he should shoulder uh, a good, a fair amount of the blame. I do think that there, uh, there were other players that didn't show up in the series that they needed more from. Really, uh, you're when you look at the players that uh, underperformed. It wasn't just Simmons. It was basically everyone outside of the, you know, Embiid, Tobias Harris, Seth Curry. They they really missed Danny Green. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was out the last I believe four games of the series, and that really showed. Uh, in in some of those losses. And yeah, I, th- I think that there's blame to go around. But at the same time, this being Philly sports, I mean, it's, it's not a great time to be Ben Simmons right now. And I can't say that it's not undeserved. So I'm wondering, Neil, um, that's that's got to be it for Embiid and Simmons together on the Sixers. I mean, <laughs> frankly, there's no way to, to go on at this point, right? Yeah, it feels that way. And again, I thought that they were sort of at that point or approaching that point last offseason. And then they decided to give it another go. And by and large, it was a very successful 
partnership for the majority of the season, but I think really when you get deep into the playoffs and this type of thing happens, it does expose the limitations of having a point guard who really is scared to shoot in situations where you would need him to be able to shoot because he knows that he's not going to be able to make the free throws. Uh, And just in general, the limitations of his shooting overall or lack thereof. And so, you know, there's a lot of good things that Ben Simmons brought to this team during this, uh, during the season and even during the series. And, you know, defense is, is one of those things and they'll have to find a way to replace that if they do move on from him. But I think, you know, we, I think we talked after they exited the playoffs last year about who you would build around. Would you build around Simmons? Would you build around Embiid? I think Embiid answered that question really resoundingly with the type of season that he had this year where he was in the conversation for the MVP at at the end of uh, the season. And Simmons didn't really answer that question. If anything, he created more questions in, in this playoff loss. I mean, Simmons obviously has problem. you know, the, his just game is in his head right now pretty clearly but also the game the game and the series was not managed great by doc rivers either so it's i mean there are the sixers should have won various games that they didn't win in that series so it's not like it all came down to one bad fourth quarter for ben simmons i mean it just didn't right they outscored i mean the sixers outscored the hawks in the series as a whole um and you could make the case that yeah with so many home games the fact that when they were at their best, they were, you know, kind of convincingly looked like they were the better team uh, and still didn't win. Some of that comes down to the coach. Of course, then again, Ben Simmons should shoot better than 15 for 45 from the line. I mean, I mean, that is like totally, totally unacceptable. Right. But he is a player who could be coached. And it's clearly a psychological problem. He's not a, uh, what, 30% free throw shooter on his career. I mean, his numbers aren't great, but he's not that bad. You know, I think some of it has to go to the coaching. I'm not giving Ben Simmons a free pass here, but I do think, like, the team making the decision, the the people making the decisions about how he's used and sort of what he's doing on the court need to shoulder some of the blame. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I, I... You know, they they changed their team makeup this year to to account for Simmons not being a shooter. You know, they they brought in outside shooters. They had Seth Curry and I mean, and, and Danny Green. I really do think losing Danny Green was huge for them in this series. He was one of those players that really did help make up for what the problems between Simmons and and Embiid, the way the t- the players work together. I think. Now, the problem, of course, is, you know, is Daryl Morey really going to get anything back for Ben Simmons right now? Do they even have the choice to trade him right now, given probably what they'd have to give up to move his contract? I'm just not sure they can actually move on at this point in time. It's going to be a really interesting offseason. I, I do think he could go. I mean, look look what happened. Obviously, this got some attention as well. But, you know, look at, look at Markel Fultz and what he was able to to do once he got out of Philly um, and and turn around his career to a certain degree in Orlando. So I, I think it's not over for Ben Simmons, and I think a team will see that he still has this really unique skill set and re- unique physical ability and that if we deploy him in the right way and, and maybe you know just the sheer change of scenery getting away from the, the Philly 
media and crowd, who knows? Maybe that'll help him. Yeah. Well, let's talk for a second about the team that knocked off the Sixers, the the Atlanta Hawks. Neil, they've already wildly exceeded expectations. What are you looking for them in their series against the Bucks? Yeah, I'm I'm curious as to how much of the keys to that win over Philly will apply against a Milwaukee team that you know, we we watched that series with Brooklyn Injuries were a factor there for sure, but also I, I think the Bucks, uh, you know, looked like the type of team that had the uh, a championship edge to them, you know, late in that game. Now they were also aided by the fact that Kevin Durant wears silly clown shoes and <laughs> his toe was on the line for that shot. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, aside from that, yeah, I, I do think that one of the big things was, especially in game seven, seeing guys other than Trey young, pick him up when he was having a frankly terrible shooting night. And he did make a, a, a couple daggers late in that game, but Kevin Herter played great. He played the game of his life. Uh, we saw John Collins knock down some shots. Gallinari, you know, all of the ensemble cast for Atlanta that I don't think have really gotten their due because, you know, in the national uh, conception, it's Trey Young and a bunch of guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think anybody really took Atlanta as seriously as, as they should have maybe for all of the season. Uh, certainly since Nate McMillan took over and since they've been kind of gelling into the team that we saw on the court against Philly they're they're playing their best basketball right now and it isn't just Trey Young you know they uh, I, I think in the past they wouldn't have been able to survive a game in which he shot so poorly but now they're they're able to do that and I think that's a testament to Nate McMillan and also a testament to just the development of that supporting cast around him. Yeah, you can't say enough for the turnaround of that team once once Nate McMillan came aboard. That that being said, the flip side is that's pretty damning for the Sixers that they lost to a Hawks team that got a terrible shooting night out of Trey Young and didn't have DeAndre Hunter and they they still lost. So I, I don't know. At what home, to, don't forget home. they don't, were at home. I don't really know what to make of that. But yeah, no, for, for sure. I think the the Hawks have been, including by myself, uh, have been underestimated this entire playoffs. I'm just glad it's over. Glad I don't have to pick between Philly and Atlanta anymore. So <laughs> go Hawks. So so are you taking the Hawks and over the Bucks in the in the Eastern Conference Finals? Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, <laughs> I'll be open about like in terms of you know put on my analyst hat. I I think the Bucks are rightly favored in that series but uh i just am loving this ride that atlanta is on right now yeah absolutely i did want to like you mentioned that kevin durant's clown shoes i did want to <laughs> to uh, shout out was that um, too harsh no I'm sorry. no i did want to shout out our good friend um and former colleague chris herring who's now at sports illustrated he wrote a piece for us a few years ago durant's shoes always fall off that's like a weird thing that keeps happening that's his thing yeah and and as chris was reporting this he did find out that kevin durant does wear shoes that are are too big for him and you just you can't i couldn't help but wonder as i saw the uh, you know zooming in on the (laughs) on the three-point line if he just wore shoes that fit him would he would the nets be in the conference finals right now i think so you die by the clown shoes but you also live by the clown shoes who's to say (laughs) That if he had worn normal fitting shoes, yes, that would have counted as a three. But maybe he doesn't score 48 points. Maybe he's not as comfortable and they're not in that position to begin with. Exactly. The man (laughs) man likes loose shoes. And 
you know, he's he's accomplished a lot wearing shoes that are not really on his feet properly. So, this is, you know, what do you want him to shoot better? He wants them to fit like slippers, which is also probably the first time any pro athlete has ever said that about their footwear while they're playing a game. <laughs> yeah, he should really. He should just play in slippers. I mean, I would like to see that. <laughs> or barefoot. Me too. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's look at the West real quick, uh, which we have we have one game in the books already, but we have to talk about Devin Booker, who turned in a forty point triple double in Game One against the Clippers. Jeff, where do you think Booker ranks right now using Nate's uh, NBA All Star star metric? Is he has he moved up the uh, the list of stars in our in our metric? Well, I can't speak to Nate's official alpha <laughs> beta metric, but to on my amateur opinion based on eyesight, yes, he has. I mean, he's <laughs> been awesome. He's also been clutch. I mean, this is not the, the the first great performance we've seen out of him in this playoffs. He's been doing this the entire playoffs and, and pretty consistently. So, yeah, I mean, he looks... He looks awesome, so I, I I'd put him right there as an alpha. And I think what they're getting from DeAndre Ayton, which is, you know, arguably, you know, I think we we kind of knew Booker was great. I think maybe public opinion has has moved him up a little higher on those sort of star echelons. But DeAndre Ayton, I I think has also taken a big jump in what he's been able to do on on both sides of the floor, and and seeing him do that. Um, you know, against Rudy Gobert and, and, and against some tough competition has been really impressive. So they're they're formidable. I mean, I think they're I think they're sort of they have two stars kind of coming into their own at the right time. And the thing that I love about Booker in these playoffs is, yes, he's been scoring really well and really efficiently, which is, you know, that's been true for a while for him. But he's also playing well on defense. He has a plus 1.6 defensive Raptor, which was always, you know, statistically at least, that's been the big weakness in his game. And uh, in these playoffs, he's been one of their better defenders. Now, of course, they played great defense overall in the playoffs also. Uh, and it has been about more than just Devin Booker. Jay Crowder uh, has had a great playoff. You know, his numbers are great. Um, but just to see Booker in that same group of, yeah, he's he's been playing really well uh, on both sides of the ball. That makes the Suns incredibly dangerous, and you even saw that in Game 1 uh, of that series where I think the Clippers, you know, they were drained after uh, that semifinal, whereas the, the Suns were coming in fresh. They didn't have Chris Paul, but, you know, other than that, they, they did have the, the rest on their advantage, uh, advantage on their side. And the Clippers were like, yeah, we kind of underestimated. And again, the Clippers didn't have Kawhi also. That's a little bit of a you know, maybe bearing the lead uh, a little bit there. But, um, you know, they were like, look, this Suns team is legit. They were maybe a lot scarier than we gave them credit for in our minds, at least going into the series. So, yeah, the Clippers are going to have a huge fight on their hands if they, if they want to battle back. Of course, losing the first game or two of a series and then sort of storming back is sort yeah. of the Clippers thing yeah. also. So we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> They've too. got them right where they want them. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, you know, the Kawhi situation is wild because everyone sort of assumed, oh, well, he's done. You know, this is an ACL thing and he's not he's not going to play again. And now it's really it's really unclear if, you know, and I can't tell if the team is just being cagey or or what this all means. But, you know, I there's a world in which Kawhi Leonard makes it this triumphant return and, and leads the Clippers back. Yeah, I'm I'm a little dubious of that though. I I think he I think he's a very at the very least I think he's not going to play in this series. I think maybe if it 
they go to the finals, we could see him, but they're certainly being cagey. And considering the injury, I'm not holding out a lot of hope for that. I, I do think Chris Paul, it does seem like, or, you know, it seems like he was asymptomatic. And I, I do think we might see him as soon as game three, um, based on the progress he's making coming back from COVID. Yeah. And that's another one of these, um, you know, playoff series where, it's it's not new for these playoffs because we've seen it a lot, but star injuries or star whatever you would call the Chris Paul thing, star positive COVID test, even though he was vaccinated and shows no symptoms and probably should be allowed to play. Anyway, uh, whatever you want to call those um, are, again, kind of de- could determine you know, or play a large role in the outcome of this series, like who gets their star back sooner. I think, I mean, I think Kawhi would have a bigger impact for the Clippers than, than Chris Paul would have for the Suns. But I mean, Chris Paul is no small contributor to their success either. No, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting because this playoffs more than any I can remember is a complete war of attrition. Uh, almost, if you look at the Suns and let's say they get Paul back and we don't count that because of it was, you know, obviously something different. It was, it was COVID. It wasn't a true injury, although he was a little banged up earlier in the playoffs. They're the only team that really hasn't lost a significant member of their rotation. Literally every other team that's been in these last couple rounds has lost a key player, and in some cases, multiple key players. And you look, obviously, uh, we talked last week or a couple weeks ago about uh, Dante DiVincenzo and his impact on the Bucks, and we look at uh, Atlanta currently not having DeAndre Hunter and, and not having Bogdanovich possibly for this series. Um you know, and that's not to mention Kawhi and all these other major injuries and what the Nets had. So, yeah, I mean, the Suns might win this just based on being the most healthy team. Yeah, I mean, I think the and the Bucks. you know, DiVincenzo, obviously a big loss, but they have been their stars have stayed healthy, which is you know also important there too so there there's there's that like will the heart the healthiest teams you know make the final and and maybe you know it's hard to tell which is interestingly what we said about last year in the bubble the thought was always going to be whichever team could stay healthy however you want to define that whether it's injuries or staying free of covid would win and so weirdly like I mean, that did play some kind of role in the playoffs last year for sure, but it seems like it's played a, a larger role in these playoffs this year, despite receding COVID levels, you know, um, and not pl- having to be in a bubble and so on and so forth. But then you've got the the LeBron-style injury truthers, bubble <laughs> truthers, whatever we want to call them, that think that it, because of the, uh, you know, short turnaround from last season to this season, uh, that the players weren't really fully physically prepared and that that has caused them to have more injuries. And, you know, there may be something to that. Yeah, I that'll be something I, I'd still want a little bit more data on that. I am I'm not convinced the way that we've looked at it so far with looking at time lost to injury this year. You know, there's been some reporting on this that like trainers were keeping players out longer than they maybe would have otherwise because of the short turnaround. So I feel like there's a little bit of teams were more careful and so then more time was missed. I mean, there's no question that a lot of All-Stars have been out during this playoffs. But I still can't tell if 
what LeBron is talking about is is real, is true. Yeah, there was a shorter turnaround for some teams, especially teams that played in the finals last year, but there was a much longer layoff for other teams. So it, it doesn't feel, I just, I'm not totally sold that that is a real thing. Sorry, LeBron. <laughs> Sorry, LeBron. You're a, you're a <laughs> <No>. bubble skeptic. <laughs> I hate disappointing LeBron, but you know. I am. I yeah, am well, I'm sure he's listening. Yeah. Well, obviously, hot takedown is his favorite podcast. Duh. All right. Well, <laughs> as we get here into the into the conference finals, we'll see how this all plays out and which team can stay healthy. Let's leave this discussion here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 5:38, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories. Some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. What do you have for us, Neil? Well, I want to hearken back to an earlier rabbit hole that uh, listeners, if they were listening on May 14th, 2019, might remember uh, when we talked about the MLB record for most teams played for that was at the time held by Octavio Dotel. At least we believed it to be held by Octavio Dotel with 13 franchises played for. And Edwin Jackson, another pitcher, played for his 14th team. So he broke the record. Uh, I say we believed it to be held by Dotel alone at the time because, of course, at the time, Negro Leagues players were not part of Major League Baseball history. Now they are. So we can say Roosevelt Davis, who played from 1924 to 1945, also a pitcher, uh, played for 13 different teams as well. So it was a co-record. We didn't know it at the time, but it was. And then Edwin Jackson broke it. So 14 teams. That was a lot for a player to play for. That's almost half of every team in Major League Baseball. And as part of that, I compared with other leagues. So the NBA record was 12 teams. It was a four-way tie. We mentioned Joe Smith was one of those, the anonymously named former number one <laughs> overall pick in the NBA. He played for 12 teams in his career. The hockey record was also 12, held by Mike Sillinger, played from 1991 to 2009. They, neither of them beat Edwin Jackson's 14-team record. And the NFL record that I found was, at least in terms of playing in the regular season, like actually for a team, belonged to Shane Graham, the longtime kicker. He had uh, 10 <laughs> franchises played for. Uh, now, if you expanded it to practice squads and various other, you know, unofficial, like not playing in a regular season game, but maybe a preseason game or so on and so forth, you could get Josh Johnson. He played for 13 NFL teams. You could get JT O'Sullivan. He played for 11 NFL teams. Shane Graham actually played for 14 which would match uh, Edwin Jackson's record if you included practice squad and various other um, uh, mechanisms. And I believe Ryan Fitzpatrick is about to play for, <laughs> certainly if you look at regular season, he would uh, he would be at nine. And I'm not sure how, how many he would have if you included practice squad. It seems like all of them. <laughs> yeah, it feels like he's played and, and started. And we even made a comment that he was viewed as the long-term or at least medium-term answer for some of these teams at quarterback, which is kind of wild. Not necessarily uh, what you would think of from J.T. O'Sullivan, of course. <laughs> but I was reading the news, uh, sports news, over the past week or two, and uh, something jumped out to me that we need a revision uh, or at least an update or an addendum to that rabbit hole from 2019 because I found a player, a pro sports player, 
who really, frankly, obliterates all of the other numbers that we tossed out there, even Edwin Jackson, this guy has played for more than twice as many teams as what? Edwin Jackson uh, played for in his career. And that is, of course, uh, I'm talking about the former Uruguay international striker, Sebastian Abreu, also known as El Loco. <laughs> he set the Guinness record, Guinness Guinness Book of World Records, Mark, for most clubs played for uh, at 31. So when he played uh, in March for a uh, Uruguayan team known as Sud America, uh, he, that was the 31st team of his career. And he played for them in his final game uh, like 10 days ago, uh, I want to say. And he announced that he was retiring at the age of 44. He had a 26-year career. And he said that he decided with conviction that it is the right moment. Uh, he's playing in the first division of Uruguayan football, which was important for him to go out uh, playing for a first division team. But he said that, you know, the team is, is well and it's the right time for him. He made his debut with another Uruguayan team, uh, at least at the senior level, uh, in 1994, uh, a team called Defensor Sporting, Sporting. And he set the Guinness record uh, when he joined a Chilean team in 2017, which I will not attempt to pronounce the name <laughs> of it. Uh, he not only being known for playing for those 31 different teams, but it stretched across 11 different countries. So Edwin Jackson only played in two different countries uh, <laughs> in, in his career. So uh, he, he played in Uruguay, Argentina, Spain, Brazil, Mexico, Israel, Greece, Paraguay, Ecuador, Chile, and El Salvador. And over the course of that 26-year career, he, he played in 851 games. He scored 432 goals. He actually played against Diego Maradona in 1997, the late Diego uh, Maradona. Uh, he played for Uruguay in two World Cups. He also played on the 2011 team that won the Copa America Championship. And yeah, he's going to plan to start a coaching career following his retirement after so many different teams and so many different games. But uh, it's a little bit... Uh, you know, fudging compared with these pro-American leagues because even if Edwin Jackson, for instance, had managed to play for every single MLB team, all 30 teams, he still would have not tied the record uh, set by El Loco. He would have been one club short. So it's literally impossible uh, for for a player in baseball uh, and basketball to tie this record in hockey, if you uh, when Mike Sillinger was playing, it was also impossible. But if you played for every team now and in, uh, with with Vegas uh, existing, you could play for 31. And when the Kraken joins Sarah's favorite team mm -hmm. joins the NHL next season, you could potentially break the record. And of course, in the NFL with 32 teams, you could also potentially break the record. But you'd have to play for every single team in the league. Uh, so in the, in club soccer, it's uh, there's a lot of countries. Obviously, <laughs> played for a lot, a lot of them himself. <laughs> There's a lot of teams, a lot of countries, a lot of chances to play, but you still have to play 26 seasons and until age 44, eat your heart out, Tom Brady. Uh, and and he's a he's a chump. He only you know even over his long career, he only played for two teams. He should yeah. have been out there more, trying to play for more teams, uh, like Sebastian Abreu. Yeah, I like. 
it's a I, like I don't want to take anything away from from Seb because he but you obviously. Will. But you will. You're going right after no, Seb I'm, now. I, uh, That's clear. No, no. <laughs> hey, that that longevity and that number of 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 games that's very impressive i'm not sure that the level of competition in some of those leagues was you know because we're not counting you know minor league stints and stuff for the players that you looked at originally neil so i i you know that's fair that's very fair (laughs) it is very impressive i'm not taking anything away from sub except for what i took away from good yeah except for you know disparaging his uh, Guinness world record. Uh, I love these kind of guys. I, first of all, I love any athlete who's older than me. So right. he's yes, already very important. Yes, he's already he's already <laughs> winning. Him and him and Phil Mickelson. <laughs> but I love these kind of Ricky Henderson types who won't stop playing until you force them to stop playing. You know, <laughs> they'll play. He'll play for the Newark Bears if he has to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Ricky Henderson, I looked it up because I thought of him immediately when I was kind of digging into uh, Seb Abreu's career. He played for 17 teams, if you count the minor league teams, including the Newark Bears, and also the Fort Lauderdale Yankees, the Jersey City A's, the Modesto A's, the Ogden A's, the Portland Beavers, the San Diego Surf Dogs, all of those teams. San Diego uh, Surf Dogs. San Diego <laughs> Surf Dogs. That still only gets you to 17, so... Really, yeah, it is a different. Um, it's it's a different ball game, quite literally, but also metaphorically, in terms of playing for a lot of different teams in uh, in pro soccer. Well, I hope that Seb Abreu uh, can coach now and and coach in a whole bunch of different teams too, right? Like that's oh the yeah, thing. that would be great. Yeah, yeah, he won't be able to like you know how teams will will hire a former player. He has so many teams to choose from if he wants to, you know, go home and coach. <laughs> somewhere who, that he's played. Neil, Neil, do you know who holds the uh, the coaching equivalent? Ooh, that's a great question. I don't know uh, who has made the most stops uh, in their coaching career. Um, it's got to be one I mean, of these NBA been, guys. Who's yeah, there just, have been journeyman uh, NBA coaches in particular, or NHL. I feel like NHL coaches because there can only they can only pick apparently from a group of about 35 guys to coach the <laughs> NHL yeah, for the past that's 20 it. years. That's it. So they'll coach like one season in a place, get fired, get hired by another team in the same season they got fired, uh, and then, uh, you know, coach that team. So, yeah, I feel like if you're going to be a journeyman, Seb Abreu-style coach in in one of the American pro sports, I feel like it would have to be the NHL. That could be – I think we we can do that for for an upcoming rabbit hole, dig into the coaches. Yeah, we're going to get so much mileage out of this concept for so many rabbit holes. 100%. 100%. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's the beauty of the rabbit hole. All right. Well, thank you for that, Neil. And congrats to Seb Abreu on a long and winding career. <laughs> that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room, and our podcast commissioner is Chad Medlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.